following message is presented by First Baptist Church of Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Now the message. So I don't watch a whole lot of TV. Uh, I don't get into many series. I don't get into reality shows. I'm really not sure how this started. I think we walked in on Jordan watching it one time, but Marcia and I are going through a series right now called Master Chef. Uh, I think when the first one we saw was like uh, season 18 or 19 or something like that, so it was way at the end of, of where they left off at. So we went back and started on season one and started watching it. We're now on season 10, about halfway through it. And uh, it's our habit, it's our ritual that we get our food ready, whatever we're eating, lunch, supper, whatever it might be, and we'll bring our lap trays in there, and that's what we watch while we're eating supper. Sometimes I often wonder as I'm eating this, so, you know, what would they say about this meal uh, if I were to bring it before them and, and let them uh, judge it and see what they thought about it? So MasterChef is all about uh, most of the time they have three judges. They are five-star chefs. They are entrepreneurs. Uh, they are people who really know food. Uh, and, and what they are doing is they are trying to find the best home chef in America. So the season starts off, and this is usually the funniest part, is when you get all the ones in that they call out real quick that they know that they aren't going to make the grade. Uh, they have at least a 100 that are starting off that they go through. Cook us your best meal. Let us see. And the whole goal is to get a white apron. If you get a white apron, you're on the show. You've made the top 24. You get to go on through the rest of the season. So... In the final, if in the initial part of it, when the hundred come through there, it's real easy to tell who the real chefs are and who the fakes are, because they'll bring a meal up. It'll look disgusting. We've heard the judges say that sometimes, but the true test is when they take a bite out of that meal. How long is it going to stay in their mouth? <laughs> that is the telltale sign of whether or not that person that they are looking at and that dish that they are looking at is it a quality meal that we would want to put on our show and you would be in competition for the top home chef in America. We've literally seen some of these guys put it in their mouth and spit it out right away and just dump the whole plate in a trash can. And so you know that person's not going on any further than that. So their whole goal is, is to go through the whole season eliminating one person at a time. The person with the worst dish of that particular episode uh, will get knocked off of the show and it whittles it down to just two people typically cooking head to head to bring their best, uh, uh, appetizer, their best entree and their best dessert for a full meal. And whoever makes the grade on that final one is America's next master chef. But it's real, real easy to determine who is the real chefs on the show and who is not. Even by looking at them, listening to them, watching them perform while they're in the kitchen. It's very, very easy, even for somebody like me that is an amateur cook. Uh, I like to cook. I consider myself to be a pretty good cook, but I can watch them sometimes and tell just by the way they're stirring something, mixing something, their way of reacting to what's going on. Um, when they put it on the stove, how long does it take them? They can, you can tell by their own sayings the way that they're evaluating themselves. Oh, this is not going well. I cooked this too long. I put too much milk in there. There's too much flour in this. They know right away that the chefs aren't going to like what they have prepared for them, and they know that they're not going to make it to the next round. So determining a real person from a fake person, determining a real Christian from a fake Christian, 
Let's put yourself in this situation. If you were to go and to plant a church, you say, Brother Tracy, I feel that the Lord is leading me to plant a church in the city next to us, maybe in the neighborhood I live in, and you were to put some preventative devices, some layers of protection in there to prevent fake Christians from coming in and trying to run the church, what would you do? What, what would be your litmus test to determine that? Whether a person is uh, legitimate in their faith and in their beliefs, can you trust that person? How far will they go? Are they out for evil intentions? Are they trying to undermine your authority? How sound are they in their doctrine? What are some layers of protection that you would put in place to prevent hypocrisy from setting in eventually? So that's the situation that Paul is up against as he writes this letter to the churches of Galatia. And as I mentioned when we started this study, what I want to do with the book of Galatians is, is to help better prepare you for your apologetics, for your witnessing, for your soul winning efforts as you face some of these people that may claim to be Christians. How do you prove that they're not? What does their lifestyle reflect? Are you in a good position to where you don't want to be judgmental, but you don't want that person to die and go to hell either? Do they have a genuine faith or not? So confronting hypocrisy, how do you do it? What are some ways that you can prevent it? What are some ways that you can identify it? And how did the Apostle Paul respond to it here in the early stages of these churches at Galatia? We've looked at the true gospel, how uh, Paul wanted to establish a church that was a church of the true gospel. We've talked about the Apostle Paul writing this letter to help prevent truth decay. Um, he was up against so many Judaizers coming through that area uh, that they were wanting to pull them back into the old legalistic ways of Judaism. And now Paul is up against some of his own counterparts some of the original apostles, and he's having to confront them head on and then tell them what you're doing is not right. So confronting hypocrisy, how do we do it? It's something we have to proceed with caution uh, into this area. We have to have ourselves prepared spiritually, mentally, and ready to confront this head on. It's not a matter of if we encounter hypocrisy, it's when we encounter hypocrisy. And Jesus warned that there would be time when false priests, false prophets, and false Christ would arise in the latter days. As we see a uh, waning away from the faith, we see more and more hypocrisy creeping in. We see churches that are going off uh, in different directions, getting away from the basic doctrine and the tenets of the faith. How do we protect ourselves and present ourselves against that? So if you have your Bibles tonight, Galatians chapter 2, last week we looked at verses 1 through 10. Uh, we saw that there was an issue that came up. Uh, Paul went to present himself as an authentic apostle uh, with his mission work being to the Gentiles, those that were not Jews. And so he went to Jerusalem and, and faced the church leaders there in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John. Uh, the, the issue at hand was circumcision. They were saying that the Gentile believers needed to be circumcised the same way that the Jews were to authenticate their true faith in Christianity. And Paul says that's not the case. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. 
And we'll be getting into some of those verses later on as we go through this study. We're going to get into some of them. We're going to touch a little bit on the topic of justification here at the end of this message. Right up front here, uh, the Apostle Paul goes to Jerusalem and he begins his mission work again. But we see Paul is back at Antioch and Peter comes to Antioch and Paul confronts him about Peter's own hypocrisy. What is a hypocrite? What is a definition? Number one, point number one, hypocrisy needs to be quickly identified. Verse 11, it says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Man, this is the guy that preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost. This is the guy that when he preached, 3,000 people were baptized. They were saved. They became Christians. The church was birthed through the apostle Paul. But this was also the guy who denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. The Lord restored him. Peter was always the first one to stand up and speak his mind. What's going on with Peter here, uh, the founder of the church? Why was he to be blamed? What is the apostle Paul blame, blaming him of? He's blaming him of straight up hypocrisy. What, what is a hypocrite? Uh, the word hypocrite itself is a Greek theatrical word. Uh, it, it represents an actor or someone who plays a part. Uh, the meaning of the word hypocrite means to pretend to be something that you are not. It's a mask that you put on. You're disguising something. You're hiding something. You could call a hypocrite a two-face, uh, a wolf, wolf in sheep's clothing, a two-timer, a charlatan. Uh, whatever word you want to put it in, a hypocrite is someone who is putting up a front. If you ever watched the uh, the building of uh, the assembling of a building, the construction of a building, uh, pretty much like this sanctuary that we're in, most of the times you think a, a brick house is something that is strong and solid. But after Hurricane Ida, when it came through Homer, we found out that brick walls were not as solid uh, as they're made up to be. Uh, a little bit of wind, uh, sometimes they will collapse. A, a brick wall is basically a facade. It's not there for strength. It's not there for construction purposes. It's not there for, for bearing loads of any sort. It is there strictly for looks. It is covering up the skeleton of the building that is made of two by fours, two by sixes, two by twelves. It's just made to, uh, it's just there for cosmetics, basically. A hypocrite is someone who is putting up a facade. They are putting on a front. They are trying to conceal something that is on the inside. So in the Old Testament, Scripture has this to say about hypocrites. It identifies it a little bit differently. Psalms chapter 26 verse 4 refers to hypocrites as false men or dissemblers. So in the New Testament, uh, Jesus points out uh, hypocrites in the form of Pharisees. The word hypocrite takes on a little bit different connotation in the New Testament because they were specifically the religious people who were putting up a front or a facade trying to fool everyone else. The Pharisees were the epitome of hypocrites and in Jesus' eyes they were role models for other hypocrites. Jesus referred to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. He referred to them as a cup that is clean on the outside, but it is filthy on the inside. 
And in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus even said that the Pharisees as hypocrites, they tithe to put on a facade. Even though they tithe, they neglect the more important matters. One of the terms that you'll probably be familiar with is that they strain at a gnat, but they swallow a camel. They were more into the minute details, the stuff that was apparent on the outside, but on the inside, they were guilty of sin. And in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, when Jesus was addressing the Pharisees and calling them hypocrites, he quoted directly from Isaiah chapter 29, Verse 13, he answered and said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, a hypocrite can speak the right words. A hypocrite can probably quote scripture. A hypocrite might even listen to Christian music. Maybe they can come in and be one of the best singers in the choir. But they're putting on a facade. They're wanting everybody to know, hey, here's what I want to be. But inside, their heart has not changed. Martha Bolton wrote a book, and she had this to say about Pharisees. She said this, a Pharisee is someone with 20-20 vision for your faults, but legally blind for their own faults. So this Jerusalem meeting that the Apostle Paul went to uh, earlier in the chapter, did it settle all of the issues as the Galatian Christians began fellowshipping with other Christians? Apparently not. Because when Paul went to Jerusalem, all seemed well. It seems that by the time Peter made his way to Antioch where Paul was, Paul had gotten word about what was really going on with the Apostle Peter. And when he did, he immediately took care of it. So being uh, being able to identify hypocrisy or hypocrites, sometimes a tough thing to do. But something was going on that threw up a red flag for the Apostle Paul. And when he saw Peter, he knew right away, Peter, you're guilty of being a hypocrite. Where you're at is dangerous territory. You're walking on thin ice. But the worst part of it is, is that you're dragging other people in with you as well. How do you tell a real Christian from a phony Christian? Some of you have worked uh, with money a lot. You've worked in banks. You've counted money before. Uh, you know that one of the first things that they do to train you to identify counterfeit money is what? You don't, you don't uh, examine a real, uh, I mean a counterfeit $20 bill, do you? You, you Examine the real thing first. You try to learn as much as you can about the real money, how it's printed, what it feels like, what it looks like. Does it smudge a different way, a specific way? Now they've gotten a little bit fancier. they got these little yellow markers that they can put on it and tell right away whether it's real or fake. Unfortunately for us, we don't have little markers that we can go around wiping on people with. That just wouldn't be right. <laughs> I wish it would. I wish we did have something like that, but but we don't. So what do you do? Just like on the show Master Chef, you've got to examine it over a long period of time. Some of these cooks would come on this Master Chef show. Boy, they would talk a good talk. Uh, they had they dress in character. 
Uh, they tried to impress the judges with their words and with their appearance. But when it all got put on the plate, they knew right away, you're not the real deal. You're not what we're looking for. And sometimes that's the way it is with a Christian as well. You, you examine their ministry over a long period of time. How do they treat their family? How do they treat their church members? How do they treat each other? And I think one of the ways that Jesus said there's, there's a way that that is the earmark of every Christian. Jesus said, you will know, people will know that you are my followers by the love that you have for each other. I think to identify a hypocrite, you need to watch how they treat people. Are they trying to fool them? Are they trying to trick them? Are they trying to use them to support their agenda? Or are they trying to disciple them and grow them up in the Lord Jesus Christ? What was Peter doing? I I don't think Peter was doing anything detrimental to himself, but what he was doing was setting a bad example for other people. And Paul didn't like it, so he confronted him head on. So first of all, when you identify hypocrisy, The next thing you need to do is you need to confront it as quickly as possible. Point number two, hypocrisy needs to be quickly confronted. When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Paul wasted no time. So in the previous part of the chapter, we see that he took these certain steps addressing the other issues, the issue of circumcision and legalism. But here, Paul understood the danger of this situation and he got to the heart of the matter as quickly as he could. Not only did he get to it as quickly as he could, but he did it publicly as well. The Jerusalem meeting did alleviate the matter of the Gentiles being required to adhere to the Jewish customs, especially the one pertaining to circumcision. As they pertain to salvific purposes, he's saying this circumcision, this legalism, these Jewish rituals that you go through, they have nothing to do with your salvation. The Jerusalem meeting approved sending missionaries to the Gentiles, but it changed nothing about the fellowship between the Jews and the Gentiles. We're going to see in just a moment what the real problem in this matter was. Paul identified it. He saw what was going on. Maybe he heard it from someone else. He heard how Peter was being a two-faced. He said he was acting a different way around the Gentiles than he was with the Jews when they would come around. And over this, Paul said that over the practices that Peter was pursuing, he said he withstood him to his face. What does that mean? It means he got up in his grill. (laughs) It means he just confronted him as soon as he could and as abruptly as he could. He withstood. It means to set oneself against or to oppose. He let Peter know right away, Peter, I am in total opposition of your conduct the way that you're acting, and the danger that you're presenting to these new Christians here in the church of Galatia. Verse number 12, it says, For before certain men came from James, 
he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. He was acting one way with one group of people. But when his Jewish friends came around, he pretty much turned his back on them and said, you know what, I wasn't doing that. I wasn't hanging out with those people. I, I want to be with you. I would rather be around you right now than anyone else. He was acting one way during one time, but when his Jewish friends came around, he put his mask on. He put his facade on. And he said, I just wasn't doing that. So the next thing that you need to do is not only identify it, quickly confront it, but the next thing you need to do is point number three, determine whether or not it was intentional. Determine whether or not it was intentional. This was very, very obvious that there was no doubt in Peter's mind what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. He was testing the waters. He was going places that he shouldn't go. And he was putting on a facade when his Jewish friends came around. It wasn't the fact that Peter was eating with Gentiles. That's not what upset Paul the most. Paul went to the Gentiles. He hung out with them. He was a missionary to the Gentiles. Peter had even been given permission at one time in the book of Acts to go and eat and hang out with Gentiles. Acts chapter 10, verses 28 through 29. God was preparing Peter to witness to Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile leader. And God provided the vision of the sheet with the ritually unclean animals on it. Three times that sheet came down. And the Lord told Paul, rise, kill, and eat. For what man has made unclean, I have made clean for you. And so it was a conditional uh, situation in which he was allowed to fellowship with the Gentiles in a way that would have not have normally been acceptable. But he was also allowing Peter to hang out with the Gentiles, to be around them in a way that it would not be insulting or uncomfortable for those around him. However, the fault in this situation, the book of Galatians, uh, Paul is pointing out here that Peter would act one way around the Gentiles, and then when the Jews came around, he would act another way. Don't tell me that adults don't suffer from peer pressure. <laughs> Man, we see somebody with a new vehicle, that's what we want. We see somebody next to us renovating their house, making it look better. We want to do work on our house as well. Keeping up with the Joneses is a popular phrase. And I think that's exactly what you see going on in Peter right here. Peer pressure is getting to him. He's wanting to be a people pleaser. And in doing so, he is setting a bad example for those around him. It wasn't the matter of Peter eating with the Gentiles that didn't set well with Paul. It was a matter that he was acting two different ways depending on what group of people he was around. So was it intentional for Peter to do what he was doing? Absolutely it was intentional. Because the wording here says that when the Jews came around, he would withdrew and separate himself from the Gentiles. That word withdrew is an intentional avoiding and a hesitation. He was being a two-faced. So what? what? What did it matter? What was the danger in Peter 
doing this. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this specific passage, he points out two thoughts on this particular matter. One of the dangers is the weakness and the inconsistency of the best of men. He wasn't being consistent with his behavior. He wasn't being consistent with his teaching. But the second thing that Matthew Henry points out, and I think is the most important, is that the great force of bad examples is what Peter was making, especially the examples of those with high profiles. They were always looking up to Peter. He was one of the founders of the original church in Jerusalem. He was a leader. He had been with Jesus. He had walked on the sea. Surely if Peter's doing it, it's got to be okay. If it's okay for Peter to do it, then it's okay for us to do it as well. I think that was the greatest danger of Peter's hypocrisy here in this situation. And the next point proves that. Point number four, you identify it, you confront it, you determine whether or not it was intentional. But the main thing you need to remember about hypocrisy is this, be aware of how quickly it can spread. It wasn't just the other Jews that had fallen into it. But it was also Paul's friend Barnabas that had been with him on this church planning mission that he was on. It spread like a cancer. It spread like gangrene. It spreads like an infection. Especially when someone of a higher profile is guilty of hypocrisy. They're, they're being two-faced. They're living one way and proclaiming another way. Others see it. They think it's acceptable. And then it just begins to spread like wildfire. Verses 13 through 14. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So not only was Paul, uh, not only was Peter acting a different way when his Jewish friends came around, but his Jewish friends thought that it was acceptable for them to live that way as well. In other words, Peter drugged them down along with him in his hypocrisy. The rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. As Paul is writing this as a warning to the church of Galatia, he wants there to be no doubt whatsoever just how dangerous this is. And he wants them to see if you let a little bit of hypocrisy into your church, it's going to take over before you know it. It can spread so, so quickly. The rest of the Jews and Barnabas said, well, if it's okay for Peter to do it, so can we. No, absolutely not. That is not the case. Peer pressure. Does it affect us? Do we get warned about it? Do we get warned about hypocrisy? Do we get warned about following other people into places where we shouldn't go? If your mom was like my mom and you did something you wasn't supposed to do because everybody else was doing it, what would she tell you? (laughs) Well, if everybody else jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge too? I know you've heard that before. But that's what Paul is saying here to this church at Galatia. Look, just because you see one person doing it, or even if you see a group of people doing it, that doesn't mean it's right. 
So how does that apply to us? If we see one church doing it and it's doctrinally incorrect, we need to be aware of it and we don't need to follow them in that direction. We don't need to follow trends. We don't need to follow what the world's doing. We need to stick to what the Lord is calling us to do here and avoid hypocrisy at all costs and know that it's going to spread if it ever sets in. Paul identifies it as not being straightforward. That word straightforward there in the original language means to live right or to act rightly. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all, this is where he really gets up in his grill and goes toe-to-toe with Peter. He says, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, then why do you compel Gentiles to live as the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. What is Paul doing here in verses 15 and 16 as he wraps up this passage? As he cinches down this warning to the church of Galatia against hypocrisy. Point number five, he's using it to highlight the heart of the gospel. He's saying, are you justified by what you do, what you say, and what you eat? Are you justified by your works that you do in the flesh? Or are you justified by faith? He's saying, Peter, see if you were really, really secure in your faith, if you knew for sure what you were justified in, You wouldn't go running away from the Gentiles when your Jewish friends come around. You would know that that was okay even when the peer pressure set in. Paul uses this particular situation as a teaching point and as an example of how we should deal with hypocrisy as well. He uses it to help the Galatian churches and us to focus on the doctrine of Justification. Are you justified by your actions and your deeds or are you justified by faith? Are you justified by the things that you do and don't eat? By the amount of money you drop in the offering plate? Or even by your baptism, some outward sign? Are you justified by that or are you justified by your faith alone? Here in the Galatians and for this situation, Paul is making a distinction between salvation through faith in Christ Jesus and in the works of the law, legalism. And as we move through this letter to the Galatians, one of our goals is to glean ways in which we can sharpen our apologetics and witnessing ability. What what do we learn here tonight through this particular passage in this situation what, what can we take away with this? What can we put in our toolbox to help us? First of all, we can, we can use the identification, the confronting, and dealing with hypocrisy. We can use that as a security here in our own church. We can also take away from this how to deal 
uh, with a faith or a religion that has a works-based or legalistic system. So how do you respond to someone who says they won't come to church because there are too many hypocrites? Have you ever had anybody tell you that? You invite them to church, so I'm not going to that church. There's just too many hypocrites in that church. What's your answer? How do you respond to that? I usually ask them, you know, when you go to Walmart, you think there's any hypocrites at Walmart? (laughs) Probably just a few of them. What about when you go to the ball field, the football game? You think there's hypocrites there? Probably a lot of them there. Bill Fay, in his book, uh, Sharing Jesus Without Fear, he gives uh, some objections that he normally gets from people that he witnesses to and how he responds to them. And uh, on page 177, objection number 31, says there are too many hypocrites in the church. And, and here's his response to that uh, objection. He says, uh, you are absolutely correct. <laughs> there are hypocrites in every church. And I'm so glad you're concerned about that because, sir, when you join the perfect church, it won't be perfect any longer. <laughs> I don't know if I'd use that one or not. Uh, I think that would probably be the end of my witnessing effort right there, but that's, that's a pretty good comeback. Uh, another response that he has is this. Jesus said not to follow hypocrites, but to follow him. And I think that's what we were singing about a while ago. Let others see Jesus in you. Don't put up that facade. Don't put up a front. Don't try to fake it. Be genuine and be real. Hey, let me, from working in the schools, junior high and high school, that's something that I've learned. I, I learned that years ago, but even more so now. What are kids looking for? What is this younger generation? They're looking for something that's real, something that's genuine. And it's going to take you a long time sometimes to let them know that what you have is real and genuine. You're going to have to put all kind of plates. You're going to have to prepare all kind of desserts. You're going to have to earn that white apron and let them see, hey, what this person has is genuine. I can see Jesus in this person, and that's what I want in my life as well. Here's another response that he has. He says, I'm glad you know the difference between a hypocrite and a genuine person. And then you smile and you say this, if you accept Christ as your Savior and I see you begin to act like a hypocrite, I'll remind you of this conversation. (laughs) Are you ready to pray? I think you can lead them in like that. How do you respond to someone that says, I've had a bad experience in church. I, I trusted someone. They broke my trust. It could even be a pastor. It could be even be a church leader of some sort that they looked up to. And I think that's what Paul was so adamant in this situation about. He said, Peter, of all people, why are you doing this? You're really, really destroying our testimony. And you're undoing everything that we've done here at this church by being a two-faced, by being a hypocrite. By acting one way at one time, you're not consistent enough in your faith. How do you confront hypocrisy? How do you identify it? How do you share your faith with someone that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt? They're going to church, but that's all they're doing is going to church. They're putting up a facade. They're putting up a front. But you have evidence, you have seen them do things and say things that lets you know that something else is going on in their heart that's not genuine. 
I found this on social media, uh, and it's got a little bit about hypocrisy in it. I don't know who wrote it, but I, I think it's so, so accurate. When you're talking with someone and they say they're not coming to church, they give you all kinds of reasons. You know, this this business about uh, hypocrites being in the church, that's just one of them. That's just one lame excuse that you'll get. But what if we use some of their excuses to say we're not going to something that they invited to? Uh, perhaps they invite you to a sporting event. That's what this is all about. I think a Christian wrote this. Uh, to give a, a good reflection of some of the responses that they've had of why people don't come to church. Here's 12 reasons why I don't attend sporting events. Number one, the coach never came to visit me. <laughs> Number two, every time I went, they asked for money. <laughs> you ever heard somebody say that about the church? They always got their hand out. They always plastic. That's all they want from me is their money. Number three, the people sitting in my row didn't seem very friendly. The seats were very hard. <laughs> the referees made a bad decision that I didn't agree with. We've seen a lot of that the past couple of weeks, haven't we? <laughs> I was sitting with hypocrites. They only came to see what others were wearing. <laughs> Some games went into overtime and I was getting, it was getting late. The band played some songs I had never heard before. The games were scheduled on my only day to sleep in and run errands. My parents took me to too many games when I was growing up. Since I read a book on sports, I feel like I know more than the coaches anyway. I don't want to take my children because I want them to choose for themselves what sports they like best. What kind of excuses have you been told lately about why someone won't want to come to church? How do you really justify them getting some type of benefit out of coming to church? Here's what I would have to say to that. You don't just invite them to come to church. You invite them to come to Jesus. Sometimes coming to church is not what they need. Sometimes coming to church is what they need. But what every person you talk to needs is the hope of Jesus Christ. And if you can offer them something real, something genuine, and let them know what Jesus did for them, that their sins can be justified by his shed blood. And I think that's why Paul nails it down with this doctrine of justification by faith here in the end. Saying, so you know what? When they look at me, I want them to see Jesus. Because Jesus saved my soul and he set me free. Joseph Stowell had this to say about hypocrisy. In his book, The Trouble with Jesus, it's at the end of your outline there. It says, not only does hypocrisy in our lives bother God, it gives a watching world an excuse to reject Jesus. If our lives are not morally consistent with what we claim to be good and true, there is no hope of catching the attention of those in our own lives. Let others see Jesus in you. Don't put up a facade. You be as real as possible.
you tell them that this life that I'm living is not possible any other way other than the Holy Spirit of God living inside of me. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about First Baptist Church, including contact info, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.